You know, we were the first certified organic dairy and creamery in the western United States in beginning 1994. Now, it's probably close to 90% of the dairies in Marin County are certified organic, and actually 80 to 90% in Sonoma County as well. And we haven't, we haven't lost any dairies. Looking at a trend, well, in the United States, there were 4.6 million dairy farms in 1940. Now there's 43,000 left today. I think going organic and starting the creamery were all the same decision. We had actually done organic vegetables, and we hadn't used any herbicides since the early 70s. We hadn't used any synthetic fertilizers since the early 80s. In my mind, organics where we want to get to. We want to make a sustainable system. We're still working on how can we make farms sustainable? How can we make them where they're positive influence and a positive food supply for the community and make a model that can be replicated other places? We don't sell nationally. We don't sell internationally. The idea is to build a regional model that other people can replicate around the country and around the world. Well, I think there's huge challenges to, to the next generation. How can you start a farm when there's you can't get land, you can't get housing, you can't get financing? So that's another aspect of food movement is how do you move it on to the next generation? Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. This season, we're talking with visionary chefs, gardeners, farmers, organizers, artists, and scientists. These people have shaped the food movement in California. We talk with a diverse group of California's rebel food makers about the ways they do things in their farms, kitchens, and communities that reshape the way we think about food. This show is made by Devin Sampson and Chelsea Wills. Special thanks to the support from Cal Humanities, Food First, and Rebecca Murillo for making this season possible. Albert Strauss is the founder and CEO of Strauss Family Creamery and an advocate for organic, non-GMO dairy production, environmental stewardship, and family farms. He grew up on his family's dairy on the coast of Marin County, California, near Point Reyes National Park. Strauss continues to be a leader in sustainability with projects that include independent verification that his feed is GMO-free, a methane digester, and a water reuse system that recycles wastewater from the creamery. His carbon farming program is a model for the Marin Carbon Project and the California Healthy Soils Initiative. Thanks so much for for being here um, and for making some time to talk to us on Delicious Revolution. Thanks for for being here. I do want to start. I do want to start in the beginning because because you grew up on on the dairy ranch out on Tomales Bay. Bay and. Um, what did it look like there? What was what was life like there at the, at that time? Well, I grew up on our dairy farm in Marshall, um, and uh, my father had started the farm in 1941 and ran it as a conventional farm. It was a family farm that uh, uh, started with 23 cows. We had um, a partner for 20 years that they did a lot of the work together. Um, but it was always a struggle to to make it profitable, make it something that you really could sustain as a f- family farm. And so there was always this pressure to be able to be able to sell out at the end. If if everything went, if you couldn't make it in in the farming business, you would sell out for development. And so that was something that my parents didn't agree with. They worked very hard to start. Uh, environmental organizations, community organizations, uh, trying to facilitate between um, environmentalists, farmers, and governmental agencies to try 
see how we could preserve the land in Marin County and keep it in agriculture and keep it open. And so there was a very, it took decades, but there was a very good um, synergy and kind of collaboration between all these different groups. And they passed, well, the Board of Supervisors passed the one house per 68 acre zoning, agricultural zoning in the 70s. And um, actually, let me back up a little bit because um, in the 60s, there was actually a plan to put 100,000 people in West Marin in a four-lane freeway and in one house per acre, even more dense than that. And so this one house per 60-acre zoning, agricultural zoning, was a huge revolutionary thing. But it could be overturned on a, a majority of the Board of Supervisors. So my mother and her friend Phyllis Faber uh, got together and came up with the idea of starting a land trust, an agricultural land trust. And it was the first agricultural land trust in the nation. But the idea was that they would pay farmers to take the potential for development off their land and keep it in trust uh, and keep it in agriculture in perpetuity and and be compensated for that. And so that was something that um, I was kind of born in this environment of environmentalism, farming, family farming. Um, we had done organic. Well, actually, in high school, I, I was I started, uh, I think around the first Earth Day, I started a recycling club um, at the high school. And um, it was, you know, it, it was it was something different. And but we kind of looked at and actually one of the projects I did was on the ecology of West Marin uh, for for school. And um, but it it was born out of my parents and my parents' uh, vision and work life work to preserve the land and the community in, in our in West Marin. West Marin's a really incredible place for. I mean, we we are focusing on California in this season, but we, we do have a global audience. It's, um, it feels really wild and it's really close to urban areas. It, does it look and feel a lot like when you were growing up still? We've, well, the communities, we've lost our community and we're losing, we've been able to stabilize agriculture, but we've got a lot of forces against us right now. And actually some things like, sleep about but um in our marshall the community we have there's i think somewhere around 125 homes less than 30 percent of them are actually lived in because it's all short-term rentals it's you know people can't afford to live and work in the community because they're now businesses we came up with a community plan back in the early 80s that tried to keep a balance of you know tourism and agriculture and mariculture and 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 just a working community and uh, we've had that erode. Um, I think agriculture we have actually, you know, we were the first certified organic dairy and creamery in, West, in the western United States, west of Mississippi River, in begin nineteen ninety four. Now it's probably close to ninety percent of the dairies in, in Marin County are certified organic, and actually eighty to ninety percent in Sonoma County as well. And we haven't really we haven't lost any dairies, which is looking at a trend. Well, in the United States. There were 4.6 million dairy farms in 1940. Now there's 43,000 left today. And in Marin County, I think there was 150 in early 60s, and now there are 25 left. And so it's this trend. 
how do you stabilize a farming community that has these in conventional dairying? You have a big volatility in pricing month to month, so you can't plan or budget or reinvest in your in your infrastructure or pass it on to the next generation. Who would want to? What child would want to grow up on, in a on a farm that they can't pay themselves? And um, so we're making progress on that end. You know, we've got huge. Uh, challenges with the, the national park that owns a third of the land in West Marin. And it, it was formed on the premise that part of it was supposed to stay in agriculture. And, and there's six organic dairies in the national, in Point Reyes National Seashore. There's a, there's, I think 20 or 25 livestock operations in the park. And they're, they're on year to year leases. They can't, they can't, you know, make improvements on land. They can't, um, or the infrastructure can't, they have no security, can't get loans to do anything. So it's, it's not a sustainable way to farm. And so that's a concern for me. Um, you grow up on a farm out there and at some point you do decide to take off and go to college. Is that right? Yeah. I grew up on the farm, um, fed calves, fed chickens, um, did a lot of, lot of things around the farm growing up 4-H with, uh, um, you know, I took, uh, taught and took electrical electricity and different, doing different types of projects that I think we've lost in our, in our schooling, school systems and stuff like that. But, um, so when I went to college, I had to kind of decide I wanted to either do electrical engineering or farming and i had to decide which direction to go and i i liked farming because i could be my own boss i could i could um uh, be outdoors which is not as much anymore <laughs> so which um but um it was something that i really enjoyed and i loved animals also so it was something that um i continued on i went to cal poly in san luis Obispo. And um, dairy, a major in dairy science, and then I, I, my senior thesis was on setting up a, a processing plant, a milk processing plant, and um, it was. Um, I had taken. I've been on the dairy products judging team, so I, I won third place in the in the in the um, Western Regional uh, Dairy product scoring contest uh, in ice cream. Um, so um, it was something that I, I really enjoyed. I learned how to make ice cream, you know. You won an award in ice cream tasting. That's what it's ice cream, yeah, for defects, yes. So it was um, – um, but I, I came back to the farm, became partners with my father, and kind of put out put out my mind that it was going to do anything about processing or anything else. I just I was working on how to make – a conventional farm viable. Um, it was, you have 40 to 6% of your income goes to feed the animals. So that was the biggest thing I was working on. So I looked through the yellow pages and tried to find um, feeds or different waste products that I could use for feed. I used sake waste and tofu waste and cocoa bean hulls and, and uh, I think it was lettuce and cabbage. I'm trying to think what else I used. Anyway, oh, I used I had a Nabisco contract for a couple of years too um, during the '89 earthquake, where the whole plant fell, the chimney fell down on the plant in Oakland. Um, I worked a lot to try to 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 make it more economically economically viable, but the prices never went above minimum price, 
And it kept, you know, it was always at a depressed price. Dairymen will, you know, when the price is up, they produce more milk. When the price is down, they produce more milk. So it was a kind of catch-22 where you always have a surplus of milk and the prices stay depressed. And so it's a big roller coaster. And who was buying the milk at that point? We we were part of, well, actually in the let's see, late 60s, I think we were part of Challenge. Uh, that it was a co-op that went broke. And then in the 70s, we went to, uh, we were part of California Corporate Creamery, which is California Gold. that went broke also. But they, just around the time it went broke is when I someone approached me about the idea of making organic milk for ice cream. And it was 1990, and I kind of they kind of gave up on the idea. They were going to go to other 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 uh, manufacturers to look at doing that. Um, but I kept looking into what organic was. It was a new law in California. Um, there was no federal law yet, and then how to build a processing plant, how to feed the well back on the dairy side, how to feed the animals organically how to, you know, what it meant for the land, what it meant for um, how to treat them organically without antibiotics and hormones, um, and then also how to build a plant, get financing, um, equipment, everything, and, and develop the market. So that took me three and a half years to figure out, and we, we ended up getting started under underfunded but uh getting some loans from family and friends um and also leasing equipment and uh so we were able to get started in guinea of 1994 was that here in petaluma no it was actually we're still in the same place 22 years later um i found a abandoned commercial kitchen in marshall that was used to be part of synanon the drug and alcohol rehab that turned into a cult and their commercial kitchen that they served a thousand to 2000 people in Marshall. It was a national headquarters. And so there was a, a woman who has it as a, had bought it from the, the San Francisco foundation at the time. And, um, it was just sitting there. So I was able to get that refurbish it and get equipment in there. Actually, we got the equipment in, installed like in, a, I think, a month and a half, um, but very little. You know, we started very little and built it over time. So, what what was behind that choice to to start the creamery? Or and um, did it come before the idea to convert to organic, or was it part of that conversion for you? I think going organic and starting the creamery were all the same decision. We. We had actually done organic um, vegetables, and my mother grew shiitake mushrooms for a while, and we were selling farmers markets. But um, we hadn't used any herbicides since the early seventies on our on our on our land. We hadn't used any synthetic fertilizers since the early eighties, so the land was all certifiable. The um, we, in my mind, organics where we want to get to. We want to make a sustainable system. We're still working on how can we make farms sustainable? How can we make them where they're positive um, influence and a positive uh, food supply for, for the community and make a model that 
can be replicated other places. We don't sell nationally. We don't sell internationally. Uh, there's been little odds and ends that have happened, but the idea is to build a regional model that other people can replicate around the country and around the world. So those are tied hand in hand. You know, we I decided to use reusable glass bottles um, as packaging for milk, not to homogenize the milk so it has cream coming to the top. Um, so we tried to do minimally processed, no additives, um, and the highest quality we can make. And that is built... If we didn't have the quality, I don't think we would have consumers that would, would want to pay the extra cost for for that. Um, so that's what we kind of try to to keep true to and try to, to work towards. You know, we've we first started with you know just milk and like whole milk and non fat. Actually I did a uh, um a survey before I started at the farmers market and out in the public about what people drank. They said I did my business plan before I did my business or incorporated in my business plan. 80% of the people said they either drank non-fat or low-fat milk. So when we started, I thought I'd have all this cream to make butter. And it turned out we had over about between 60 and 70% of our customers bought only whole milk, the cream top whole milk. And so it was like so much for my, my, um, my model and my business plan. Um, but it was something that was reminiscent for a lot of people of the 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 milk delivery, you know, the milkman and the home delivery, and um, there wasn't too much like that around. So it was a, a good place to start. And then I had Shea Panisse and Alice Waters and um, come to the farm and ask about us making butter just like they make in France. I said, "What what's it mean?" And she's. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's the grass or the clover, and so I started making butter and asking, you know, how it was. It was did it meet our expectations? And it did. When you start this conversion to organic, you start building a, a creamery. Um, you've written. I was reading the website, and um, the, the, some of your neighbors thought you were kind of crazy for doing this. Is that is that how it was? Yes, it was definitely that neighbors thought I was crazy, but. Um, Actually, a lot of them are either either they converted to organic or they aren't in the dairy business anymore. So it's it was something that I, f- I figure that a lot of the things I do, I do to to try them out and to see if it works or doesn't, and then other people hopefully will cor- incorporate it if, it if it works. So organic was one. Um, I'm still, I think we're still the only creamery. And dairy that actually tests for every load of feed for GMOs, and and asks for certificate analysis on every load of feed and every ingredient. Um, I found GMOs in our certified organic corn in two thousand five, and then started our own cert- our verification in two thousand eight, and then became the first one, first creamery in, in North America to be verified non GMO in beginning two thousand ten under the non GMO project. And so I think it's organic integrity is what, what we try to maintain and, and, and really hold, hold tight to because if we lose customers, customers, um, confidence and trust in what organic food is and the organic label, uh, we'll end up like 
in the UK where they had a 10-year decline in organic sales because, in my estimation, the supermarket chains took over the labels. There was a disconnect between farming methods and qual- and, and quality, and consumers only thought it was more expensive. So um, that's what, in my mind, uh, caused the decline, which is just starting to recover from. From the beginning, the idea was to make kind of a model that others could replicate because it seems like that's, I see glass bottles and really good milk all over the country now, I think. Yeah. And I, a lot of, a lot of people have asked us for, uh, for advice and, and we've, you know, tried to help other farmers and other communities be able to get organic milk and organic products. So I think that the food system as we, and the farming system that we've had for the last 60 years hasn't worked. Uh, you know, as I said, we've lost all these farmers, you know, we lost rural communities. Um, we need to change it. And so by having a, a sustainable organic food system and help revitalize rural communities, that's something that I think we can bring bring to the table and help other communities do as well. I was asked to go by Dr. Vedana Shiva to India, I think it's about four years ago now, to go to India to help subsistent dairy farmers go towards organic practices and help on the quality of milk. And so we've been working in India, just having calls to people in India to, to help them eliminate antibiotics, double their milk production, and working on the sanitary milking practices, even by hand, to get as good a quality of milk as, as it can here. You know, there's a next step to get them double the milk, double the price for their milk from consumers so they, they can actually make it a primary income source. Are Indian farmers facing some of those same kind of challenges that, that you were? Indian farmers all over the world are, uh, are facing the same issues. Um, there's different scale, different different, uh, um, issues, but I mean, well, not different issues. It's pretty much the same issues. A lot of people don't get exposure to outside advice that actually looks at it differently. You know, they have state vet- veterinarians that treat the cows with antibiotics. You know, there's no prevention. There's no looking at it differently. And so coming from my experience as a dairyman, I can talk to farmers around the world and talk to them about my experiences and how, how I've been able to, to, to change that paradigm. Yeah. Wow. Um, do you see yourself as, as part of a food movement? I, yeah, I, I, I don't see, I think we're, we're trying to change our community, our food system to be something that's sustainable for everybody and for, you know, farmers, for the land, for the farmers, for, for the employees, for the animals, um, and create a, a food system that's, um, healthy is po- you know, it brings something positive. So we were working on climate change. You know, that's the biggest issue that we're dealing with today is, you know, through, uh, we've had a methane digester that takes all our waste from our animals, um, and produces all our electricity for the farm, um, and we get hot water from that washing equipment, and then we we're we're putting all we have electric vehicles that we run off of that as well, and then putting together. Hopefully this week I'll have a test run of our full scale truck to feed the cows. It'll be powered by the waste from the cows, and so and then we so that's one part of it, and then the other part is we were the first dairy on the marine carbon project to 
look at um, how can you sequester carbon from the atmosphere and in, back into the soil. And it could be a, by adding compost, planting hedgerows and windbreaks, having animals graze the, the pastures that actually promotes more plant growth that um, you know, it's a cycle. So, you know, put more carbon back into the soil so, um, by adding, uh, if you put a half an inch of compost on the statistic is if you put a half inch of compost on half the rangeland in California, you would offset all the um, commercial and residential energy uses. And then we calculated if you put methane digesters on two thirds of dairies in California, you would offset the effects of a million cars. And so, with this new law that just passed about a month ago to reduce uh, methane emissions by 40% by 2030, we're looking at working. We've been working with this company to, to build and operate methane digesters on farms and looking at how we can make it a, a model that farms can incorporate our farms can incorporate and other farms where they're not actually running another business trying to, you know, produce energy and deal with this other whole operation that takes their energy away from farming. Um, so there's a lot of different dynamics going on. We're also part of um, Patrick Holden and the Sustainable Food Trust in the UK had a conference in April in San Francisco, the True Cost of American Food, that we had four of our dairies do a survey um, by Dr. Harpenter, uh, Sandu in, of Australia, who's an ecosystem services uh, professor and, and an advisor to the UN on climate change, do uh, use metrics to to look at the environmental costs and benefits and the social costs and benefits equated to a gallon of milk. And we, we were in this conference with Joel Salatin was one of the people that did the, the evaluation, and then a corn and soybean farmer from from. Uh, Minnesota also was part of it. And so there was a lot of learnings around that and a lot of learnings about the effects of food, the food system on health and on the environment. I, I guess I asked the question about being part of a food movement because that's, that, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, no, I mean, it, it makes sense to me. I think, um, Chelsea and I, one of the more kind of like itches that we that got us to start the podcast was thinking about like, oh, where, where do we fit in a food movement? And maybe it's like a broader set of people than we thought. And I recently talked for the same season, talked to um, Nikki Silvestri, who's been working on the Marine Carbon Project, doing interviews, gathering okay. data for them. And it kind of surprised me. And I was like, well, what, where does the food movement go now? Or like, what's moving? It's like, oh, we need a lot more businesses. We need to work on the, our economic power as a food movement, as well as our as well as our lobbying power and our movement building. Well, I think there's huge challenges to, to the next generation. How can you start a farm when there's you can't get land, you can't get housing, you can't get financing? So that's another aspect of, you know, the food movement is how do you move it on to the next generation? And how do you, I think there's a lot of people cooking food, and, you know, there's not that many people growing food. And, um, so I come from the farming end course, yeah. you know, so I look at it from that aspect, but it's, um, I think it's all of us working together because we are still a minority, mm-hmm. you know, even though I like to say that we're now a majority, we're, we are the norm and we're not a niche in, in, mm-hmm. in dairy in, in Marin Sonoma County, we're the norm mm-hmm. and our conventional is the exception is the, is the niche. <laughs> so, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a huge, 
it's a huge issue. It's a huge challenge, and it's and it's going to take everybody working together, um, like it did. Like we made the changes. My my parents' generation, you know, just kind of working through the challenges of land use, and you know, I think we have the same challenges of commu- you know rural communities and of farming that we've had you know for the last sixty years. Let's talk about the rural communities just a little bit, because I you say you're just working on um, some an internal project, talking with some workers about their experience, and I, I know um, and and you mentioned that it was it's quite difficult to live in West Marin County, and I, I know that from experience. I've, I've tried, I've never been able to find a place. Right. I mean. The one challenge we have is that um, the Coast Commission was supposed to be where they were enhancing and promoting or encouraging agriculture in balance with community and balance with tourism. It's now swung all the way to tourism, and at apps, you know. And what I see is that we're going to not have our rural communities or our farming in the future on the coast of California. So it's a huge concern for me. Um, you know, most of our workforce is, is are Hispanic. Um, most of them are immigrants, um, and and we've actually had an internal project of talking. You know, putting a, a video presentation of people's stories of how they came to this country, um, which we just saw today. Mm-hmm. So it was the first part, um, and there's some really amazing stories. Um, but we're looking actually at moving our creamery to Santa Rosa because we're too far out in the country. There's no housing. There's, you know, it's, 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 people have to commute. I think that's part of the problem is that people can't live and work in the same community. So, you know, it's, we have worse traffic than I've ever seen in my life, um, on the, on one on one corridor. So how do you come up with solutions? For I, I'm not giving up on our rural communities. In my mind, we need to hold everybody accountable to to our future and to look past smaller views to to bigger bigger views and to the future of having having our communities viable communities and viable farming and a viable food system. And it's going to take a lot of work to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, and. and yeah, that's a great answer. And it's it, when I think about really good organic food and amazing, successful projects like the Marin Agricultural Land Trust, one of the most challenging aspects of that is that it becomes kind of elite. And so I just came up with a proposal to the National Park um, to, um, to have Marin Agricultural Land Trust manage all the ag land in the national parks or in the park in Marin County. And they would start with this 152-acre ranch in Marshall that allows four to six small-scale produce or small animal farmers to live and work on this one ranch. And so there'd be there's three houses, three houses there. There's you know uh, the park wants to have it in open space and and not have anybody live there. And so um, at least that's the that's the direction that I've seen proposed. You know, so it's the absence of people and a working environment in our parks. And I think that's, it's gone too far to one extreme when that was the whole founding principle of this national park, that there was an area for wilderness, there was an area for 
wildlife and there was an area for farms. And um, and we're kind of gone away from that. Chelsea had an art residency out in West Marin a few years ago, but right at the height of the oyster controversies. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like what was on everyone's mind was like, what kind of community do we want to have here on one hand, but also like, what's nature for? Is it just to look at? Is it to work in? Is there a balance? Right. And what I put in, I did an op-ed piece in the local paper about the park service has taken out over 130 houses in, in, in West Marin in the last in the last 50 years. The leases are over, the houses are abandoned, and then um, they wait 10 years and then they're too far gone before they, so they feel they have to destroy them. And I, I kind of said, you know, how can we work with the community? Can we put it into CLAM, which is the Community Affordable Housing Land Trust? How can we look at it as a community rather than, you know, black and white there's there's grays that we're not even looking or shades of gray so um yeah i think it's a huge and the oyster company was the same thing is that it was supposed to be a non-conforming use in the park and um it was supposed to be staying there and it was a family that had been there has been there for you know two two generations and um i know her very well and so it's, it's a community member so you know we need to look beyond the extremes and look towards, you know, how can we make it? And it was part of our food system as well. Yeah. It was, it was easy for me to decide why side I came down on, um, partly because I love oysters, but partly because it's, um, yeah, that's part of what makes it so special out there is there's a, it's a working landscape, right? It's a, it's dynamic and it's the, that's the, a lot of in a, in a community that, um, can feel like it lacks diversity. A lot of the diversity comes from the folks who live there. Right. And, you know, yeah, yeah, the communities. And we we don't have enough of young people that can afford to live there. So, we, you know, literally people are dying off, you know. So it's, um, um, and it's it's, uh, discouraging. But I think we can also keep, continue to work to, to, to make an, you know, equitable, environment for so so people can come to our community and and live there and and hopefully farm or or do support type of businesses that you know revitalize our community right um i wanted to ask also about um about carbon farming and about climate change Um, another another huge topic to talk about but um um i've been hearing a lot about the california healthy soils initiative and about how kind of the, the hope of ranching, especially to, to sequester a lot of carbon in a place like California. What have you learned of, of, over the last few years of participating in this or of, of working with different kind of farming practices about, about how carbon works on a, on a dairy ranch? So we have a, uh, actually we have a 20 year carbon farm plan okay. on okay. our farm yeah. uh, that we are looking at sequestering 2000 metric tons equivalent per year. 1,600 of it comes from our capture methane gas. Okay. So there's another 400 that comes from um, compost application, um, hedgerows and windbreaks, uh, improving water development and, and fencing so that we can move, move animals around better. So it's all these practices to combine that will actually, I, I, my hope is that we can either be carbon neutral or, or carbon, carbon positive farm. Mm-hmm. And that would be something that, you know, farming should be positive. 
And I think we can make it a positive thing. Um, the, the next, you know, with my electric tr- fee truck, I'm trying to get um, off of fossil fuel. I drive an electric car all the time, put I think 18 to 20,000 miles on it a year, just going between Bedlam and in the three places I have to work mostly. But, um, and we've got a handful of electric cars here um, for employees. So how can we, get off of fossil fuel how can we um we're looking at water as a as a resource that we've done a lot of we reuse all our water as at least one time um, between the creamery and the farm because uh, we haul all our wastewater back to our farm and we've done a lot of um reclaim systems and water minimization systems which is part of carbon i mean you know being a uh, carbon neutral because we're actually hauling all our water from petaluma to our creamery right now and all our wastewater out so if we can minimize that um, that would help uh, save fossil fuel uh, water water is a precious resource so there's all these different parts are part of how you can make a viable farm that's you know that is positive and you know climate friendly and so i know that the marine carbon project and it's called carbon cycle institute have done between the the resource conservation district in Marin County, I think they're doing 10 more projects this year and Sonoma County is doing, I don't know how many projects they're doing. So, but it's going all over California. So it's starting to expand It's being recognized internationally as a, as, as a system that really where carbon is being sequestered in the soil is being recognized internationally um, as a solution. Um, the, you know, healthy soils initiative is starting to put money into it. And hopefully get, um, you know, between uh, the, the cap and trade, you know, hopefully we can start making a, a, a um, income source also for, for farms so that they can be incentivized. The other thing we're doing is actually we have a, um, a coffee company in San Francisco that actually charges five cents per drink extra for putting into carbon farm projects. They use our milk, our, our coffee. It's called barista milk. And they they charge five cents extra that goes into carbon projects on our farms, and um, we just started that last year, this year, last year. Anyway, not that long ago. Um, and it, what what it does is gets the connection between consumers and farming practices, and 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 get an understanding and education, which is part of what our mission is also is to to try to educate the the public and and. The, and the community at large about farming and, and sustainable farming practices. I, I guess picking up on that education part and also you've been working on this, but you also, you manage this business. Um, and there's not a lot of incentives. I mean, carbon isn't, it's famously underpriced in the, in the world, right? Or in the, um, what, what would it take to, for that to become the norm for some of those practices, this carbon farming practice to become the norm? I think it makes economic sense. You know, I mean, you know, I think by saving resources, by doing good practices, you're actually, you should be rewarded by what you put out, you know, the products that you sell. I mean, in the long term, I think it has to be something that's sustainable within its in an economic sense as well. You know, I don't think relying on governmental uh, subsidies is going to be really the long-term answer. I think it has to make sense, business sense. And I think it does. I mean, for us to do reclaim systems on water and energy, we're actually looking at, we've actually, we have a system actually on our farm that, um, 
we use electrolyzed water to make cleaning solutions. Where we use, used to use heat and chemicals, we're now doing it without heat and without chemicals. We're washing our, the milking equipment at the farm. And so that's saving a lot of energy. That's saving chemicals. So those are types of things that make it saves us a lot of money also. That's what I'm thinking about, you know, is, is that it actually makes sense. Does the compost application translate into a return on investment from a business perspective? Yeah, I think in yield in yields on crops or pastures, we did an experiment this last year where we, we grazed our pastures for two months. We used to grow silage and you just have one crop a year and didn't have animals on it. Now we grazed it for two months and then, then let it grow for two months and then took a crop off of it. And we actually got a very the highest quality feed that we've ever had. And the yield wasn't that much less when you take in consideration that you had two months of pasture also. So it's, you know, we're still doing more experiments and get more quantification on that. But um, so I think there's, yes. And we've put on, my father started in the 1950s to use manure as, as nutrients for the, for the crop, for the pastures. And we applied it back on the pastures since the fifties. So it's, it's actually our carbon, the soil carbon is actually much higher than, than normal. Even there was one of the test sites for the marine carbon project before they started, five years before they started. So it was actually very high levels as well. So yes, I think that compost applications and manure applications and, and just doing the right practices come back in economic terms as well. And we're trying to make it also something we can help farmers as a business, as, as the creamery, help farmers actually implement those practices as well. How many, how many farms are, are supplying straps and how do, you, how do you work with them to do that conversion? So there's now nine farms, eight families, including our own, yeah. um, that supply the creamery in Marin Sonoma County. And we actually have a different type of relationship than most, than the norm, where we have a, we meet with them quarterly. We we actually hand deliver the checks. Someone from management hand delivers their milk check every two weeks. So we have people going out to the farms. We have this trying to make a respectful, mutually beneficial relationship where you, historically it's been adversarial. The farmer needs more money. The cream, the processor needs to keep the price down, and so it's never never collaborative. And so we've tried to make a collaborative where we. Me quarterly to talk about volume and price and any issues on the farms, um, do education as well. And, um, we've been able to keep the pricing stable for us organic dairies that we keep a stable price where historically it's just a roller coaster in pricing. And, um, we've actually not had to reduce the price. You know, we were, we actually had to reduce the volume just now because there's a actually, First time in 22 years in my, we've actually had a flattening out of sales, which is something new. Um, and it's happening across the industry. And so, um, it's how do you approach these type of issues and, and challenges? But yeah, I I think we've had, we have had some great, um, relationships and, um, we feel that we need to have farms to be successful and be able to be profitable, be able to be sustainable, and be able to pass on to next generations. I have one more question, and tell, let me know if you want to add anything else. But I, I, I went to the farmer's market in Santa Rosa last week, and I asked the woman working at the Strauss 
Bruce Wendy, I believe. She, I asked her, like, if there's something I should ask you about. She said, oh, definitely ask about ice cream. <laughs> so I think we, we, we touched on it a little bit. Um, well, ice cream is, you know, I really enjoy ice cream. But it's, um, I think it's something that, you know, I I try to make an ice cream that does, doesn't have preservatives. It's, it just uses egg yolks as a stabilizer. Uh, doesn't have, uh, uh, it has it's not, no coloring. And so it's very, you know, hopefully very simple, high quality product. Um, and I mean, we do make milk and reusable glass bottle as cream top, butter, yogurt, ice cream, sour cream, Greek yogurt. And then we do like a ice cream base for uh, Bayerite Creamery and Fairfax Goop and Tara's and a few other ones. We make soft serve ice cream. So there's, there's a lot of, a lot of things that we're working on. We're always trying to reduce sugar in our products. So looking at that, but there's more ice cream coming too. Cream. <laughs> I'm reformulating a couple of them and, and we're, we just came out this, this last year with a, a um, lemon ginger snap and a, and a strawberry. And so, no, so there's always more things coming out. So oh, wait, wait, can you tell me a future ice cream flavor? Um, well, I'm re, I'm looking at redoing our banana, brown sugar banana and making a really good banana. So, um, and then, um, I, I, I'm not sure where we're going from there. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. Great. Well, Albert, it's been really great to talk to you. Do you have any last things that anything I didn't ask you about that you'd like to talk about? No, I think that, you know, I, I, I think we've come a long way and I think there's, you know, we've got a long way to go, but I think that we're working on the challenges that we face and, and working together on it. So I think I'm really encouraged about the future. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Delicious revolution is a show about food, culture, and place made by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. And you can learn more at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. There we've got pictures and notes all about the interviews, and you can sign up for our monthly email. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, too. This season of Delicious Revolution was made possible with the support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhum.org. This season is a collaboration with Food First, and a special thanks to Rebecca Murillo, our intern. Delicious Revolution.